Sometimes Scotland's bloody history has a strange way of showing itself. I think it would actually be easier to find a castle that didn't have a ghost <laughs> than one that does have a ghost. They've, they've all got stories associated with them. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, guides from Scotland tell us why it seems like more people than ever are visiting their turf this year. If you are going to Scotland this year, you're going to get more for your money and uh, book ahead as well because it's going to be busy. Plus, the folks from the Atlas Obscura directory of unusual places recommend some of Europe's most intriguing natural oddities and nearly forgotten remnants of its past. The idea is that these places really are everywhere. They're both far-flung and in your own backyard. They even found a village in France that's been left untouched ever since it was torched by the Nazis. It's been standing there in those ruins since 1944. It's just these burned shells of cars, these old sewing machines, bed frames. See what the world can show you in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Their motto is, around the corner is something that'll surprise the hell out of you. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, the folks from Atlas Obscura share their favorites among the weird, wonderful, and winsome sights that you can discover all around the world. And this time, we'll focus on Europe. Let's start out with a look at why Scotland has become such a popular destination. Its magnificent scenery and evocative sights are beautiful any time of year. And this summer, Scotland seems to have become more popular than ever with visitors from across the Atlantic. So, we've invited Scottish tour guides Liz Lister and Colin Mares to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Liz and Colin, what's new this year in Scotland? What should travellers know about uh, so they can travel smarter and better? Well, with the result of the Brexit, as we all know now, the pound has dropped in value. So one thing is that Scotland's become a very popular destination. So I would say if you are going to Scotland this year, you're going to get more for your money and uh, book ahead as well because it's going to be busy. So it's going to be busy. Mm -hmm. The dollar's going to stretch further. Yes. And uh, the result of Brexit is British buying power goes down. Yeah, exactly. Liz? Obviously, the scenery has a big part of Scotland, but with the scenery, the biodiversity, the animals, so ecotourism, very important. But I think one of the major factors that's leading to an increase in tourism is the creative industry because so many Netflix programmes, films, Marvel series are now being filmed and people want to come and see the locations where mm. these series are being filmed. Really? Outlander being the main so one what's of some, these. Yeah, Outlander, what are some other examples of media that uh, people are going to? Well, the old classic one was always Harry Potter. So Harry Potter, yeah. people go on the Harry Potter trail, and I believe 2017 is an anniversary. It's the 20th anniversary of the first book okay. of Harry Potter. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, just enjoying the great outdoors. What's a good Absolutely. example of a way to appreciate the great outdoors of Scotland? Depends what your interests are. I mean, the further you go, the more remote it becomes. I mean, some of the last true wildernesses of the United Kingdom are to be found, particularly in the northwest of Scotland. So if you really want to get to remote areas... Are you talking on the mainland or out in the Hebrides? Both. Both, I mean, the the Hebrides, obviously. But one area which you sadly deride, very (laughs) cruelly so, is the southwest of Scotland, the border region, particularly the southwest. Because when I leave the Lake District or when I leave Durham in northern England, I'm just hell-bent on getting to Edinburgh or getting to Glasgow. But there is that border area north of Hadrian's Wall that is worth a look, huh? Absolutely. Because you're right, I've I've put it down. So help me, what what should I see? Why is the borders worth any time if you're going to take time away from Edinburgh or Glasgow? Well, when people think of the borders, they traditionally think of the border abbeys, Melrose, Jedburgh. Mm. But the southwest is a very, very underrated area. And you were talking about remote areas. We have what's known as the Galloway National Dark Sky Park. 
And that is one of the few, there's, I think there's only maybe possibly up to five now, one of which is in Arizona. But this is true darkness. What does that mean, a dark national park? It means that you have no background light pollution. So there are no sources of light for several hundred miles in area. And so when you look up to the sky, it's darker than a photographer's darkroom. And so what you see in the night sky is truly amazing. And not just Galway, but also some of the islands like Col has just been rated as one of the top 10 bucket list items to go and look at the night sky in Col, one of the Hebridean islands. Colin, Mm -hmm. if you were going to make a case for the boring borders, (laughs) what will... I'm just kidding. If you were going to make a case for the borders, where where would you stop on your way to Edinburgh? Well, well, actually, I would go up to Glasgow instead of Edinburgh. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) You're a Ouija. (laughs) But I'd go via Ayrshire as well, so going a bit further north, um, and then you're into Burns country. Okay. Um, so for myself as a uh, Robbie Burns, if you like fan Burns, of Robert Burns, yeah, poetry you and writing, you visit his home there. You can visit a really great new museum of Robert Burns as well. You know, when you're in the countryside, you've got this small town culture that is so charming in Scotland. And Liz, I was so fortunate last year to be able to join you at Earth. It's a small town, and they had a, one of these uh, clan Highland games, right? Right, yes. A lot of the villages, traditionally you think of it as being in the Highlands, but right. a lot of the towns and villages of Scotland have a Highland Games as part of a Highland Games season. So I would definitely advise any visitor to Scotland to check the calendar on the website and see what Highland Games are on and make a visit because it really is rewarding. Okay, so you can look it up and know what... Because I think three times in my travel days, I have been fortunate to be travelling in Scotland and then on the ball enough to know that there was a Highland Games going on within a half-hour drive. And I've always found that tourists are really welcome at the Highland Games. We were there together at Earth, and I got to almost ruin my back picking up that big stone. <laughs> Smithy Stone. The Smithy Stone, Which right? is the blacksmith's stone. Every Highland Games will have events in common, and these go back to the days of a king called Malcolm Canmore, who decided that he wanted to get the fastest, strongest messenger. And so he set a series of tasks which would test skill so these, and stamina. These games today go back to just trying out for important physical roles mm-hmm. yes. for the security finding. of the old kingdom. Yeah, finding the strongest people in the clan, basically. Oh, okay, so there's speed and there's yeah. strength. Yeah. Because a lot of it just seems like big, giant, Scotsmen throwing heavy things mm. as far as they can, as high as they can, and, and yeah. so on. But they're all wrapped up in the culture because the dancing, the Highland dancing, is an important part of it. And each of these Highland dances has a story to it. So you have like the Highland Truce, which is the kicking off of the Highland Truce because people were banned from wearing the kilt. Or the sword dance, where people would do the dance before they went into battle. And if they were able to complete the dance without touching the swords, then it was a positive omen for success in the battle the following day. So a tourist could drop in on one of these Highland Games and Mm -hmm. just be uh, entertained by all of the feats of strength and speed and dancing. And And they can take part as well. And at the same time, they could yeah. learn a lot about the Scottish history if they knew the meaning of mm-hmm. these various things. Yeah. And you can take part. Yeah, I got so to get thing. into, into right the run yeah. and, uh, the, and the break your back, uh, pick up of the big stone. <laughs> yeah, but I think it was something to do with the free dram that you got before you had to pick up the stone. It was a great <laughs> attraction to you. I took a you. free dram. It was a great dram, but uh, the stone was very, very heavy. Are these big guys, are, are they competing for village pride or are they competing for money? Both. For the races, there's prize money available, but there's also what they call the heavies circuit. Mm -hmm. So these big heavy champions will go round and compete. The heavies circuit. And they're not not just Scotsmen today as well. There's people come from yeah, because there was a guy from Eastern Europe that was huge, and he was just uh, apparently winning some money, throwing the caber. A friend of mine from Berlin in Germany. We went to a Highland Games number of years ago, and he won the high jump. So 
Yeah. You got uh, 20 pounds in a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but the point is, any tourist is welcome. You yeah. pay three or four pounds to park the car. You go in and buy some, we call them gut bombs, these kind of mm-hmm. you know traditional greasy foods that you can uh-huh. eat and drink a beer. And, and you got the, the kids dancing. And yeah. you got One of the most interesting bits for me is the fell running. Mm. Colin, can you explain fell running? Yeah, so fell running is basically at the Highland Games if you're next to a hill. Uh, so a hill is a fell, fjall, from a Norwegian word, fjall. Uh-huh. Um, and they basically, they'll run up the hill. So first they run up, yeah. up the hill and back down, and anyone can take So it's really again. fun because it's a long run, and, and yeah. everybody would stop their attention and stop looking at the big heavies. They'd blow the whistle, and these guys would take off, mm-hmm. and then everybody goes back to the other, the dancing yep. and the piping and the caber toss. And then about half an hour later or something, uh-huh. oh, so, here, here they come. Yeah. So they, they went up to the mountain, and now they're coming back yeah. into town. Liz Lister from Fife and Colin Mares from Glasgow are Scottish tour guides, and they're joining us now to share what Scotland has to offer as a vacation destination this year. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Thomas joins us on the line from Parker in Colorado. Hi, Thomas. Well, hello, Rick. My family loves a good ghost story, and I'm curious if there are any haunted castles your guests would recommend to visit and if they've ever experienced a ghost themselves at one of these places. Ooh. Mm. All right. Is there much haunted action in Scotland? I think it would actually be easier to find a castle that didn't have a ghost (laughs) than one that does have a ghost. They've all got stories associated with them. And actually, in Scotland, we have a website for guides, and there's a lot of discussion just within the last couple of days about one of our guides who actually believes that she experienced the Green Lady at Glam's Castle herself. So, now, yeah. what's the Green Lady? The Green Lady is one of these ghosts. Each of them will have a specific or a number of ghosts. So mm-hmm. you're saying most of the grand old houses and yeah. castles are haunted? They have a ghost story, yeah. And what yeah. is a ghost story you know? Uh, there's one on the Isle of Arran. Nice day trip, actually, from Glasgow. Uh-huh. And it's Brodick Castle, which has a couple of ghosts. One of them's a servant girl who was uh, had an affair with one of the family, the wealthy family, and she was basically shunned by them and fell pregnant and then basically took her own life. And so she haunts the she servants' haunts the quarters to this of Brodick day. Castle. Yes. And some of them are quite gruesome. There's even one in Edinburgh in one of the buildings, which is now part of the Scottish Parliament, where it was said that the son of the family had what we now say were mental health issues and he was left with a servant. And when they came back home, the servant was being roasted on a spit and that the ghost of the servant now haunts this uh, building. So, Thomas, you're going to take your children to experience this low culture? Is that the idea? (laughs) Well, that's the idea. And I'm hoping that after maybe a couple of fine whiskeys that uh, we'll have a ghost story experience ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a correlation there. The whiskeys help you see the spirits. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas, you're going, do I understand you're, you're taking your family to Scotland? Yeah, uh, we're planning on uh, sometime in the uh, fall of uh, 2017, so we're looking for some of the best ideas. And I've got a 16-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. And what are they interested in? Uh, they love history. Uh, they love art. They love just the whole experience of traveling. And uh, we just got back from uh, Egypt this last October, and uh, we're still talking about that trip. So your kids like history. There's a lot of history in Scotland. And one of my favorite things in Scotland, just from a political history point of view, is to better understand historic struggles between Scotland and its English overlords Mm. and the infrastructure that was left by English colonialism. And and, uh, who's the great engineer that came up Thomas Telford. Thomas Telford. Tell me a a bit about Thomas Telford. Yeah, well, Thomas Telford built the, amongst many other things, he built the locks of the Caledonian Canal. So it's basically the waterway that links the west coast and east coast of Scotland going up the Great Glen. That links so that the, was a waterway designed to help uh, shipping not have to go all the way around John O'Groats yeah, in the top. Yeah, all the way around the top. And, and I understand there's like yeah. a 
10-year window when it actually worked, and then yeah, the and then got kinda, too big. Yeah, kind of <laughs> was no longer fit for purpose. But. One of its other reasons was to provide employment, because this was coming after the last battle on mainland soil, the battle at Culloden, where the Jacobites yeah. were finally defeated, and that meant that it resulted in the complete decline of the highlands. Mm-hmm. So to and try and regenerate employment... This was an initiative. Thomas could take his curious kids at that uh-huh. you know high school age to go to the Battle of Culloden, and the, and the the way they present that history is just inspirational. But yeah. one other thing I would say to Thomas is that you know he was talking about ghost stories. Another big side of the cultural folklore of Scotland is the superstition, because life was hard and people were very superstitious. So belief in water sprites and fairies and the little people. So even to this day where you get out into the highlands and even more so in the islands where life is still very tough, very strong mm-hmm. superstitions, the Sabbath day strictly observed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, lots of interesting material there. You know, Thomas, all over Scotland, you can take advantage of very uh, colourful and creative teaching in different historic walks and mm-hmm. ghost walks and guides that are positioned in different royal mansions and castles mm-hmm. and so on. Take advantage of those local experts that are there, especially when you're traveling with a family so the kids can have that, hear that voice and see the twinkle in the eyes of the people telling the stories who are so close to their history. Well, we're looking forward to it. All right, Thomas, thanks for your call and, and have a great time. Thank you, Rick. There's more in a minute with Liz and Colin on the best of what Scotland has to offer this year at 877-333-RIC. And then... We'll look for some of the most unusual sites you can visit across Europe with our friends from Atlas Obscura. It's Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with two friends and fellow tour guides from Scotland, Liz Lister from Fife and Colin Mares, who is a Ouija. Right. You're from Glasgow. That's right. So you're a Glaswegian. Right. All right. You know, it's an exciting time to be traveling, and there's lots going on here in the United States and in Europe with political surprises, really. Mm. Scotland voted narrowly to stay with the UK in 2014. Mm-hmm. Did England give you any more autonomy to kind of bribe you into being more comfortable staying? Not really. They bribed us, but they've not paid the bribe. Mm-hmm. Very close to when the vote was taking place in yeah. September 2014, we were told if Scotland stays, then we'll be given more autonomy. And, and that could have swung and the vote. Yeah, oh, definitely. And they didn't have any legal responsibility to follow through with that? No. There was a, a report, there was a commission yeah. and a report, and we have had some increased devolution. We have now, we have limited tax raising powers and fiscal issues were always So you the can major. decide in Scotland if you want to, to a certain degree, higher or lower yes. taxes. Okay, that was a couple of years ago. And now we've got Brexit. Last year, um, Britain, and that means Scotland, mm-hmm. voted to leave the European Union. Mm-hmm. In general, how was the Scottish vote compared to the English vote? Well, Scotland voted 62%, I think it was, to remain. So to 62? Remain in the EU, yeah. And, um, and England must have voted uh, yeah, 55 so to... I think the only other regions that overall voted to remain were London and Northern Ireland. And so Northern Ireland, Scotland, and London, and London wanted to stay. Yep. More family of Europe, more interested in trade and open borders. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, there was, obviously there's a lot of issues involved in why people voted one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, like with the Scottish one, but uh, a lot of it, again, was this fueling of sort of anti-immigration sentiments as well, which right. there's but, probably but a the, lot less of that in Scotland. The first thing that came to my mind was Scotland, a few years ago, barely voted to stay in the UK, mm-hmm. and that was the UK as part of the EU. Mm-hmm. Had Scotland known that Britain was going to pull out of the EU with Brexit, would Scotland 
have voted the same way, or do you think Scotland probably would have been less likely to stay with the UK because they wanted the option to stay yeah, with the well, EU? Immediately after the Brexit result, there was immediately calls for another independence referendum, so for Scotland independence again. So the polling was saying that, yeah, Scotland might now support more independence. Polls were starting from 45%, which is where it ended uh, with the independence vote. So possibly more people now support that. I think many of the issues were common. I think what one of the underlying issues of the independence referendum was that things are different in Scotland. I think Scotland has a much more land-based economy. Farming's very important. They receive huge subsidies which make them competitive for less advantaged areas. Fishing is very important in Scotland. And these subsidies come from from European Union, from European Union to make them competitive with farmers in the European Union. And will you get the, that generous of subsidies from England, no. from London? Well, this is why Scotland. But the other single biggest issue was that we have an aging population. We're only a population of five million, mm-hmm. and to be able to pay the old age retirement pensions, mm-hmm. we need to have people coming in and working. And we have a strong tradition of people coming from Europe to work in Scotland, and we welcome them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Lister and Colin Mares, and we're talking about Scotland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mary's calling in from Arlington in Washington State. Hey, Mary. Hi. I have a question about Scotland, but the, the people that live um, in the area I'm questioning about may differ on my definition of them being Scottish. My husband and I and a good friend are planning to go to the Shetlands, and we only have three full days. We're not quite sure how to make the best use of our time. When we were in Norway last year in a museum in Trondheim, I learned a lot about the Norwegians and the people who live in the Shetland Islands, especially during the Second World War, which really piqued my interest, my husband's part Norwegian. So one of the things we want to do is learn a little bit more about the history and the connection between Norway and the Shetlands, which is why I said they might not think of themselves as Scots. And we're also interested in the local music Mm -hmm. and the food and the churches. So I would appreciate any kind of help that the guides could give me about the most important things to see during our three days. And we'll be based out of Lerwick. We've hired a local guide who said that she'll take us wherever we want to go. Whoa, that sounds nice. And just for our listeners' help, the Shetlands are Scottish territory, uh, halfway between Scotland and Norway, yeah. with a lot of Viking heritage. Yes. Is, is that right? Yes. Liz, do you have any tips for Mary? Well, first of all, with a uh, limited time, I would suggest that you take the ferry for one night, a ferry crossing overnight, so that you can maximise your time on the island. And I think that you're absolutely right to take a local guide who knows so much about it, because it is a very remote area from Scotland, stunningly beautiful and as you say lots to see in terms of history Scapa Flow is obviously probably the most famous of these where the the ships were scuppered to prevent falling into the hands of the the Germans I would agree a local guide who's able Mm -hmm. to give you the culture the history the social history of the islands Do people there consider themselves Scottish? Yes they do but also there's an argument for independence of the Shetland Isles because is it their oil after all (laughs) after what we were discussing before Well in Shetland yeah they're Shetlanders I think a lot of them would say that I'm a Shetlander from Scottish but uh, I think Mary seems to have done some pretty good research already and so you know about the music scene which is really important in Shetland especially good fiddle players Hmm. so in Shetland really they have this tradition that basically they have very harsh winters because they're so far north 
So basically everyone learned to play the fiddle. So, so you sit inside, sit inside <laughs> through the winter. Trying to stay fiddle, warm by the fire and they, playing they the fiddle. breed the best fiddle players in Scotland there. Is that right? Uh-huh. Shetland fiddlers. Mm-hmm. It must be a small population up there. Tens of thousands. It's many islands. Mm-hmm. Right. So each island will have their own traditions, their own culture. Oh, nice. And uh, also the wildlife is spectacular. Mary, it sounds like you're in for an interesting experience. Oh, we're really looking forward to it. And the pictures I've seen of the puffins just capture yes. mm-hmm. my imagination Along with that incredibly wild coast, I read someplace that said that the Shetlands are at about the same latitude as the southern end of Greenland, which I found hmm. almost somewhat romantic. Yeah. So, so you it, probably have long ni- late nights, you know, mm. you have light at midnight. Yeah. Have a great time there. Thank you. Scottish tour guides Cullen Mares and Liz Lister are taking your calls at 877-333-7425 as we explore visiting Scotland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And Susan's on the line from Voorheesville in New York. Susan, thanks for your call. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be able to speak with you and the guides. I wonder if you could offer advice on visiting the Orkney mm-hmm. Islands. <laughs> okay, so that's the other remote gaggle of islands north of Scotland, isn't it? Yeah. Not quite as remote as the Shetland Islands, so much right. more visited, but beautiful in their own right. And again, we'd recommend the use of a local guide. To get so the that, that would be a, a short ferry ride from the north end of Scotland. Yes, yes, and yeah. uh, do they have a Viking heritage up there as well? Like, like yeah, the they do. Yeah, they have um, Neolithic remains. Uh-huh. They're finding them all the time. Yeah, so yeah. Mace Howe and uh, uh-huh. the Ring of Brodgar. Uh-huh. So well worth doing your research before you get yeah, there. So uh, Orkney has some of the most fantastic archaeology, really, of the British Isles. And there's an argument that, well, I think quite a strong argument that Orkney was one of the first places that there was permanent settlement on the British Isles. So that was the powerhouse Whoa. back in Neolithic times. And from there, they spread down to the rest of, of Britain. But uh, another thing in Orkney just is the distilleries. So they've got the two most northerly distilleries of all of Scotland. Uh, so if you're into whiskey, you can visit Highland Park and Scapa are the distilleries in Orkney. So Colin, you're like a walking encyclopedia about distilleries. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Very integral part of Scottish culture it and is, history. Yeah. So Susan, what takes you to the Orkneys? Probably the Neolithic remains mm. and any... Celtic heritage that is there as well. Now, I know in Scotland uh, there is actually a, a thriving, if small, community of people that speak Scottish out in the Hebrides. Gaelic. Gaelic. Gaelic, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. that would be the, the ancient Celtic yeah. language. In Ireland, it's Gaelic. Okay. In Scots, it's Gaelic. And very similar, they come from a similar root, as do the Welsh language and the Celtic. Um, so it's split into P-Celtic and Q-Celtic, and they went on to develop into the Gaelic. And is the Gaelic in Scotland uh, mostly limited to people in the Hebrides or in remote corners all over Scotland? Yeah, today more so it's, it's out in the Hebrides, out in Lewis and Harris, mm-hmm. and the outer Hebrides. And then to an extent more as well in the inner Hebrides, the Isle of Skye also has the Gaelic okay. College there. Mm. The Scottish government, that's one of the, the, the moves that they've made, is to try and promote Gaelic, the speaking of Gaelic and the Gaelic culture. And that, of course, has also been supported by the European Union because it's a minority language. So you, as you travel around Scotland, you'll see that the road signs mm-hmm. are in both English and Gaelic. And some schools now are Gaelic medium. Mm-hmm. So not just primaries, but also secondary schools. Yeah. You can opt to have your child educated in Gaelic as the first language. You know, in, in this day and age when things need to be bigger and more powerful and everything is consolidating into the dominant corporation or language or whatever, it's, it is interesting that the European Union has taken upon itself to fund and support the survival of the little languages. And today, believe it or not, 
more people are speaking the little languages than a generation ago, all, all over Europe, including Absolutely. Scotland. And it's the culture associated with that language that's equally important. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the value of the European yeah. Union you that uh, Europeans are willing to pay for. Yeah. Just from the, from the place names as well, you can learn a lot about the place. So oftentimes the English name for the place has lost all its meaning. But if you understand the Gaelic, you really get into then understanding more of why the place was called that and ah, yeah. what it means to the people. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Hey, Susan, have a great time in the Orkneys. Thank you so much. Trisha's calling in from Oklahoma City. Trisha, thanks for your call. Yes, I'm planning my first ever trip to Scotland, and I'm a big Harry Potter fan. So I'm interested. I heard there's the actual Hogwarts Express, the real train. <laughs> yes. uh, I think it's called the Jacobite. Mm-hmm. I heard that you can actually ride that, and I was just wondering if you guys had any recommendations on the best time of year to go or if there's a particular day of the week or anything like that that you would recommend. I mean, it's certainly, with it being the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the first book of Harry Potter, this is as good a year as any Mm -hmm. to ride the Hogwarts Express. It goes over the famous Glenfinnan Viaduct, which is the viaduct you see on the Harry Potter films. So it is a stunning route. It's absolutely wonderful to do the steam train, the Jacobite, but if you want a cheaper option to cover the same route, but for a fraction of the cost, you can actually go on the modern Hmm. railway service, which is just the ordinary public transport hmm. service. It doesn't, doesn't have the same fra- charm. It doesn't have the same <laughs> charm, but it's a fraction of the price. Yeah. And wh- where does that go from, from so where it to start, where? It starts from Fort William, so uh, Fort oh, William, Fort up in the Highlands, and yeah. goes out to Malig. Okay. Um, so you can, do it, you can do it one way or return. If you're doing it return, you'll, you'll travel from Fort William out to Malig. You'll stop in Malig for, I think, about an hour, maybe get some fish and chips and fight off the seagulls, and then take the train back to Fort William. And, mo- and most are, people who are doing this loop around the Highlands from Edinburgh to Inverness, yeah. past Loch Ness and down, they're going to go through Fort William anyway. Yeah, yeah. So if you were heading over to the Isle of Skye, that's another mm-hmm. option is take the train from Fort William to Malig and then ferries go from Malig over to the Isle of Skye. The only problem there is if you've got your hire car, maybe one person has to drive the car while the rest yeah. take the Jacobite steam train. All right. And we'd just also point out that as you pass over the Glenfinnan Viaduct at Glenfinnan, there's also the monument which commemorates where Bonnie Prince Charlie landed before he brought about the Jacobite uprising that led to Culloden and the defeat in 1746. Yeah, Yeah. tough history. That's fabulous. I'm also a big Outlander fan too, so... I'd like to do Culloden also. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just beside Culloden, you must do Clava Cairns, which is the original standing stones through which Claire disappeared (laughs) into her other world. Yeah, and there's a lot of Harry Potter sites in Edinburgh as well, Tricia. So, yeah. What are are a few of the Harry Potter Uh, sites in Edinburgh? Well, in Edinburgh, they say, I mean, uh, J.K. Rowling's never confirmed it, but there's the birthplace of Harry Potter. So that's the Elephant House Cafe. Yeah. I love that Uh, cafe anyway. Yeah, it's a beautiful cafe. Yeah, yeah. Good food and good teas. Just a couple minutes walk up the high street below the castle. Uh And round about there are a lot of places that probably did inspire J.K. Rowling. You've got the George Heriot School over the back, possibly the inspiration for Hogwarts. Uh, in the graveyard there, there's Thomas Riddle, who is the inspiration for Tom Riddle, or Voldemort, as he's mm. known, um, and a few of the other characters. Pro- Professor uh, McGonagall yep. and uh, Wild Eye Mooney. All right. There you go, Tricia. Thanks for your call, and uh, enjoy your trip to Scotland. Thank you very much. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Liz Lister and Cullen Mares. Thank you guys so much for helping us better understand your beautiful country. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All over the world, there are weird and wonderful things you can see and do. Let's check in now on Travel with Rick Steves with our friends from Atlas Obscura. They host a website, newsletter, and a best-selling book with thousands of photos and descriptions of marvels and mysteries from all around the world. We'll focus on what you can find in Europe right now. Dylan Thuris is a co-founder of the site, and Ella Morton is their chief editor. 
Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let's think about natural oddities in Europe. Uh, I noticed you have Giant's Causeway in North Ireland and another one, the Vanishing Lake in Northern Ireland. Can you talk about those? Yeah, and, and Giant's Causeway, I particularly like because it's got kind of a, a sister site in Scotland, right? It's mm-hmm. It's got uh, Fingal's Cave, and they're both those hexagonal basalt kind of geology, and there's this mythology that goes with it that, you know, there was this giant that went between these things, and, you know, they're they're both kind of in these incredible natural sites that have inspired a lot of myth and then artistic interest. Fingal's Cave has all of these crazy people that have been inspired by it over the years, everyone from... You know, Matthew Barney was visited by Queen Victoria. So both of those are, are wonderful. This is such a cool site in Northern Ireland. It's like you got all these, what are they, six-sided basalt uh, pillars. And, and it's like, you know how somebody can shake open a, a pack of cigarettes and they all come out at different lengths? That's kind of like these basalt six-sided uh, pillars. And then it disappears into the sea, and then it comes up over in Scotland, and it goes back to understandable myth that there used to be this causeway or this pathway between Scotland and Ireland. And of course, the Irish and the Scots will dream up all sorts of stories about how great they are and how they had to rip down the stairway or whatever. And today, a little background on that, you, you get to enjoy one of the, one of the oddities. Uh, what are some other natural oddities that come to mind in Europe? Uh, one is the, there's a forest in Poland called the Krugged Forest. It's uh, also known as Grafino Forest. And all of the trees have this strange hook shape. It's like a J or a C. And there are all these theories about how that actually happened. Some say that a farmer did it on purpose. Some say that it was some sort of supernatural cause. But there are a few places like this where there's a natural phenomenon that's occurred and it's become the basis for all these stories that have cropped up around it, a little bit like the mythology of the giant's causeway. You know, it is interesting how sometimes it's confused whether it's an honest-to-goodness phenomenon or a little joke or a gimmick, or is it a, from the Victorian age, or is it from prehistoric times? I mean, you can think of all the carvings into the chalk uh, hillsides of England. Some of these horses go back to ancient times, and others are just from the 19th century. An, an elaborate joke in the late 1700s or something. <laughs> right, yeah. And then in, in museums, uh, there are just some endless quirky sites. You talk about, Ella, do you remember the zoo in Amsterdam dedicated to things that are actually invisible? Oh, Micropia. Yeah. Yes. You have to go in and look through microscopes at various unicellular organisms. Yeah, I mean, the, the little museums, they're one thing that we really celebrate at Atlas Obscura because it's usually run by one person mm-hmm. who has a great passion for the subject and who's just opened this tiny little museum that may only be open on a Tuesday from 1 to 5. There's one in Croatia that I find particularly fascinating that's actually caught on globally since it was established. It's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. <sighs> and it's in Zagreb, and it was started by these two artists who used to be in a relationship and when they broke up, they were sort of joking around about how they could have a whole museum with artifacts of their relationship. And then they actually said, well, why don't we establish that? Why don't we have a museum in which people can bring artifacts from relationships that haven't worked out and have a little message beside them about what actually happened and get people to come in and read the stories? I love that idea about a museum that is really the passion of a single eccentric individual. And, and now that you mention that, it just it occurred to me, and, and these are in your book, you got Gallup the potter, who's got 16,000 samples of human hair hanging from his ceiling at his pottery oh, shop yes. in Avanos in Turkey. You've got Electric Ladyland, where Nick Palladino in Florence is the Fluorescent Art Museum, and, and this Nick is so into fluorescence. I asked him, has he been to the United <laughs> States, and what, what was his favorite place? And he said, New Jersey. 
New Jersey, and of all the places, he said, that's where the best fluorescents are. Uh, and then there's a, a friend of mine named Gerhard who runs the Third Man Museum in uh, in Vienna about the movie The Third Man. And as you said, Ella, it's open like one day a week because it's a one-man show. But these are just really where you get a personality and a passion and you can actually share it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my cousin Harvey has a canoe museum in Portland that's open one day a week where he exhibits his hand-carved canoes. I mean, we love that kind of stuff. And it's great that you can give it a little bit of um, promotion in your book, Atlas Obscura. There's lots more with Atlas Obscura in Europe, plus your calls for Dylan and Ella, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Dylan Thuris and his friend Joshua Four launched Atlas Obscura in 2009 to create a catalog of the places, people, and things from all around the world that inspire a sense of wonder. Some of the most memorable of their discoveries are out of the way and not often featured in travel guides. Over the years, thousands of people have added to their compilation of the world's hidden wonders, and they've collected that on their website at atlasobscura.com. Eventually, they brought in Ella Morton to edit and research the best of their findings, and that's what makes their book Atlas Obscura. It quickly shot to the top of the bestseller lists. And Dylan and Ella are here with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Elliot from Wisner, Nebraska is on the line. Elliot, what kinds of little-known sites have you discovered in Europe? Well, last summer I got to study abroad in southern England. It was an experience I'll never forget. But while, while most of the uh, members of my study abroad group were galvanting off to uh, London or Paris, I was staying within the boundaries of uh, Kent and Sussex. And while I was within the counties, I did one thing I've always wanted to do. I went to visit the heritage railways they had. And? Well, got to a really wonderful site. It's a pity that they're not mentioned more in uh, travel guides, really. Yeah. Because England. back in the 60s, that the British Rail started shutting down all these uh, country branch lines and thought they were useless. You know. no. Then a bunch of uh, citizens got together. They pooled in some money. They got some old steam engines from scrapyards, fixed them up, run trains daily or weekends. Mm-hmm. And it's a great experience for uh, well, people of all ages, really. I just, If you're a train enthusiast, uh, you're right, Elliot. Uh, you don't need to leave Britain. I think the best train museum in all of Europe is in York. And then uh, you've got the Heritage Railway in uh, North Yorkshire Moors, from uh, I think from Pickering, and also a beautiful narrow-gauge steam trains that are heritage lines in North Wales. Dylan and Ella, did you have any train-related sites in your Obscura? We have a, a bunch, actually. It reminds me, just because I, I lived in Hungary, they have the Children's Railway, which is a run by kids. There is some adult oversight, but by and large, the, the train is operated by children as you know, young as 10 or maybe even 8. And that's a kind of an incredible place. And then, you know, there's tons of these sort of narrow-gauge railways tucked all around. There's a, a site actually in Maine that was a an industrial site where they built this big railway, and then eventually they just abandoned it, the Eagle Lake Tramway, and they left behind the rails and the entire train cars, and it's hard to get out there. It's quite rural, but if you go, it's, it's like an incredible site. So, Elliot, that's a, g- a good comment that uh, there's a lot, if, especially if you're a train enthusiast, there's plenty of opportunities in Britain for that. Not to mention that a few uh, film crews have done filming on a few of the railways, such as the Bluebell Railway in northern Sussex. So when they're doing a period piece, they'll use that steam train? Yeah, they've done filming there for Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. the uh, 
the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that were once on ABC. I wondered, you got those wonderful departures at the train stations in Downton Abbey. You actually know where that was? Yeah, it's uh, North Sussex between the towns of uh, East Grinstead and Sheffield Park. Wow, you could write your own train obscura book. Yeah, I love trains. All right, Elliot, thanks for your call. Yep, thank you for having me. You bet. Ed's calling in from Vancouver, Washington. Ed, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Dylan and Ella. You know, I saw your book at the uh, bookstore the other day, and I just I love the idea of having a book like that that I could just kind of browse through and get excited about the you know the next place to travel to. And um, I was kind of hoping I've got this particular favorite type of place that I hope it's it's in your book, and it's not uh, you know a geographic oddity necessarily, but it's uh, political and. Uh, Sometimes I look at a map and I see some little strange boundary, and I kind of wonder why it was like that. And the one I'm thinking about is one that we traveled to last summer. It's, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Evia in Spain, which is actually completely surrounded by France. Hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have, you know, a section in the book like that, because sometimes I see that and I get fired up about a new place to go and see why it's like that. Yeah, we, we definitely have um, stuff on the site like that. I'm trying to think if, if any of it made it in the book. I mean, some of these things are like the Northwest Angle in, in Minnesota, um, which basically is way at the top and is this kind of, kind of awkward bit that sticks up into Canada and was essentially a, a mistake <laughs> in the mapping. We have a whole category on the site called Geographical Oddities. There's one that was, you know, particularly strange uh, that's mostly been sorted out now, but it's on the border of India and Bangladesh. And it was these enclaves where essentially little islands of one country would end up in the other country. And then within those islands, there'd be another island. So these sort of nested geographies, Mm. so a tiny piece down to the size of a farm Mm. of Bangladesh would be inside a piece of India and then inside a piece of Bangladesh. It was this crazy setup, although... Recently, they've, they've actually gone about kind of trying to sort that out because yeah. it's very difficult for the people living there. I love that sort of stuff. I think uh, Bosnia has a, technically a little access to the Mediterranean, but it's just like a, a road, and, and that's it. And uh, when you look at the map, uh, you mentioned that place in Minnesota, Dylan. In, in uh, Washington State, we have Point Roberts, which just is a, a little tip of land off British Columbia, but for some reason, the latitude clipped it, and it's part of the United States. We once did a TV show on our European travel series on public television, and it was Europe's little countries. And it was five countries, San Marino, the Vatican, Liechtenstein, uh, and Monaco, and, uh, and Andorra. We made a map that was the size of Luxembourg, and they all fit inside of Luxembourg, which is a tiny country anyways, and it looked like kind of a little mini-country pizza there. But every one of those odd little mini-countries has a reason and that was my goal, was not just to show these oddities, but explain the reason behind it. And there's so many borders that have reasons that are just fascinating to look into. Hey, Ed, thanks for your call. Sure, no problem. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuras and Ella Morton about their book, Atlas Obscura. Dylan and Ella, I'm fascinated by all of the World War II and the Cold War sites that you've collected in Atlas Obscura. We're just talking about Europe now, and when you think about the the sites uh, that relate to World War II, I never realized there were these army sea forts in the Thames estuary in England that date back to World War II. Yeah, the Munsell Army Sea Forts, and they really look like something out of an H.G. Wells novel. They're, they're these sort of giant hulking things on four legs that stick up out of the ocean. 
And they've been used for various purposes over the years, although now they're basically kind of slowly crumbling. And they may not be there for that much longer because they don't get a lot of care. You mentioned in your book they were actually little outposts for pirate radio when I saw that movie where England in its Puritan age wouldn't let you know the Rolling Stones talk about sex on a normal radio station. But if they broadcast from technically off the land, they could get away with it. Yeah, international watch. And that's like there's a, speaking of tiny nations, also off the coast is uh, Sealandia, which is, you know, maybe the most famous micronation uh, in the world. But the whole nation exists on basically one, you know, small yeah. circular platform. Ella, when you were doing the book, did you come up with any favorite World War II or Cold War sites in Europe that strike you? There's one that's particularly poignant in uh, France. It's an old village that was just left mm. as is after being attacked by the Nazis. And it's just been left there as a sort of living history memorial. Mm. It's called Orador. And it's been standing there in those ruins since 1944. It's just these burned shells of cars, these old sewing machines, bed frames, all these things just sitting there. Mm. And post-World War II, Charles de Gaulle said, we want this kept as is so that people will know the mm. atrocities of war, so that you can walk around it and see what happened. Yeah, that's Orador sur Glane, and it's about halfway between Paris and the Mediterranean coast, I think, in the, in the heart of France. And boy, what a powerful experience. It's like walking through a ghost town. And I think the story is somebody killed a Nazi soldier and the Nazis uh, got revenge by killing the whole town. And it's there today as a memorial. Yeah. Our friends from Atlas Obscura are helping us today to focus on the lesser-known peculiarities and the strange and forgotten wonders you might find across Europe. Dylan Thuris is the co-founder, and Ella Morton is their chief editor. She selected the best from thousands of possibilities around the world to include in their popular book, Atlas Obscura. Dylan and Ella also spoke with us on an earlier edition of Travel with Rick Steves. You can listen to their recommendations for roadside attractions, castles, and even dinosaur sites all across America. Look for program number 479 from April in 2017. You can find that in our show archives. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I love the um, Buzluja, the communist convention center built on a hilltop in Bulgaria from the 1970s. I was just there prowling through that thing, and it is otherworldly. And... Uh, in your book, you said it took 6,000 workers seven years to build this thing, and then today it's just falling apart on top of a hilltop. We've just started running some international trips, and we are doing a Bulgaria trip in January, which I will be on, and we will be going to Budludza. Have you been there? <laughs> not yet. Not well, yet. you know, when you get there, it's not open to the public, but there is a door which is boarded up, and then somebody cut a hole in the door, and you can actually squeeze through that hole. And then you walk through all of this sort of dried-up swamp of asbestos stuff that fell off of the ceiling, and you get into this middle of this convention center, and you've got the hammer and sickle overhead with falling-apart mosaics, and you got Lenin and, and Marx and the local versions of the Communist Party in Bulgaria. And it is just the craziest sight, and it's just breathtaking. And the, the roof has holes in it, so the sunbeams are coming through, and then you've got you know, Coca-Cola and capitalist, uh, you know, graffiti on top of the communist propaganda and uh, the words of the communist anthem or letters on the wall are literally falling off. And it's just, you got to go there if you're interested in 
odd Cold War sites. Another great Cold War site is the Statue Park in Budapest, where they gathered together all the statues from communist times and put them in a park. And now all these statues are ranting and raving at each other instead of keeping the people down. That's an incredible site. And, you know, I have to say, I don't want to be too much of a fanboy, but I, I'm a... When I was living in, in Eastern Europe, and actually we were starting to work on Atlas Obscura, I used uh, your guides to Hungary and Austria, and I found a number of things that ultimately made their way into Atlas Obscura and, and kind of helped set the, the stage, you know. That's great. He, and I like the treatment of cemeteries also. You did the Mary Cemetery in Romania. We were just there mm-hmm. filming, and it's the funnest cemetery because all of the tombstones are painted in, in very happy uh, blue colors, blue and white, and they sort of remember a happy thing about the person who passed away's life. Uh, you've got other sites that deal with death and cemeteries. Uh, what are some of them, uh, other than the Dog Suicide Bridge in Dumbarton? There's the bog men. You've got people that fell into bogs and were, were preserved uh, remarkably. Uh, in Denmark, there's a famous one. You've got Utsi, who was frozen into the ice in Bolzano. Sure. Yeah, he's quite a star up, <laughs> up there. One personal experience that I had in Bologna was... Um, I went to this church and had heard that there was a saint relic there, St. Catherine of Bologna. And I got to this church and it was empty and it was just me and my wife and we were wandering around and we sort of thought, well, maybe, you know, we were wrong. We couldn't find very much information about it. But as we were getting ready to leave the church, we noticed there was a little door and a little doorbell and we rang the doorbell and this door slid open. And I still don't know quite how they did it. There's some pulley somewhere or And we sort of apprehensively, you know, okay, it seems like we can go in. We walked in and through a room and then back to another. And there was St. Catherine of Bologna, which is a full-body mummified relic. You know, it's it's her. And she's Hmm. been sitting in this golden throne for half a millennia. And that's in Bologna? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that must have been a striking moment to see that. It was, and we sort of sat, you know, uh, on the floor and spent some time communing, and then a little, a little, another tiny little uh, door, sort of just like a, a face-sized door, slid open, and a, a nun handed us basically a pamphlet with some with some information, <laughs> you know. And I think part of what we are trying to do in terms of cemeteries and the ossuaries, you know, America is sort of unique in its unwillingness to look at or engage with death, mm-hmm. and it's much more a part of other parts of the world, and especially in Europe, where it's almost kind of sewn into the background. And Mm -hmm. I think a part of it is, you know, just going to those kinds of places, thinking about them thoughtfully, actually understanding their historical context, it, it changes the way you you look and think about all this stuff. And, and so that's, that's our hope. That's a beautiful thing about travel. It's a beautiful thing about Atlas Obscura. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton about their book, Atlas Obscura. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve from Cudahy, Wisconsin is on the phone. Steve, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're talking about interesting uh, experiences in churches. What do you have to uh, Well, I, not only is it a church, but speaking of uh, preserved bo- dead bodies, uh, one of my favorite quirky sites in all of Europe is St. Michael's Church in Dublin. I'm not familiar with your author's book, but I was wondering if it mentions it at all. We do indeed have St. Michael's and their, and their mummies, uh, including the famous... Crusader mummy, or supposed crusader mummy, who apparently you were you used to be able to shake his hand. Mm. Now you can gently touch his his extended finger. They've kind of pulled back, but yeah, it's an incredible place with a, a really interesting story of of how the mummies got to be there. And some of it's it's a lot of folklore around it. Who actually is in this crypt full of mummies? Ah, 
That sounds uh, like a way to spice up your visit to Dublin, <laughs> St. Mikan's Church. What was your experience there, Steve? I was there. I had virtually no... Someone told me, I don't remember who, it was a good place to go to. And I went there and took the tour, and I found the tour of the church interesting. But when they took us down to the crypts, which are still in use, you know, it's still an active uh, necropolis, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, I, I thought I had just walked into the gravedigger scene from Hamlet. I mean, it was wow. atmosphere through the roof. And there are, you know, there are a number of unforgettable crypts in Europe. You're talking about St. Mikan's Church in Dublin. And of course, you've got the Capuchin Monasteries, which are in Atlas Obscura for all the bones. And, uh, you know, it's just a thought-provoking dimension of your travels. Steve, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking about Atlas Obscura, and we're talking with editor Ella Morton and the co-founder of Atlas Obscura, Dylan Thuris. I'd just like to close with, uh, if you think about all of the fun places you discovered in Europe, I'd like to have each of you explain one that those of us who are dreaming about going to Europe, and maybe have been to Europe a number of times, but want to have an extra dimension, should be sure to know about. Ella, what is your favorite must-see obscure site in Europe? Well, this is one that there's an object in a museum near a museum that is much more well-known and well-attended, which is around the corner from the Uffizi in Florence, is a smaller science museum that you will not see lines of people waiting hours to get into. And inside that small science museum is a glass egg with gilded edges that contains Galileo's middle finger. And it was it was taken from his remains about 100 years after he was buried and mm. has been there since 1927. But if you want to see an actual part of Galileo in a glass egg... Go to that museum. And that's the Science Museum behind the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Unforgettable, sort of a relic for scientists. Dylan, how about you? You know what? I'm going to make this into a walking tour. I'm going to say you you can go and you can stop by and see Gallo's middle finger and then uh, walk over the bridge in Florence and you can walk to La Specola, which is a very old natural history museum, but it's, it's most famous for its collection of wax anatomical models. And they are these incredibly, exquisitely crafted, often, you know, full bodies that have been opened up where you can see the organs. And in fact, you could remove the organs. And they were made to help medical students in a time when acquiring and dissecting corpses was complicated. Uh, And so they are really wild, incredible objects. And I think it's a good example of, you know, Florence obviously is a huge tourist site. And I think many people miss finding some of these places that they would remember forever uh, because Mm -hmm. they feel like they're obligated to do kind of these more well-known things. So you can complement your traditional sightseeing with obscura. And uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, bodies and this kind of thing date from the early modern times when modern medicine was taking hold. And you mentioned the, the place in Florence, but all over Europe, wherever there's a university, you're very likely to find uh, anatomical theaters and, uh, you know, models of bodies and weird disfigured things in formaldehyde glasses and jars and so on. And it's just, there's a wonderland of exotic things to see in your travels. Hey, Dylan and Ella, thanks so much for joining us and best wishes with your work at Atlas Obscura. Thank you. Thank you so much. Listen to our hearts Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. 
You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.